For the episode that you're about to hear, I traveled to The Hague to attend an international war crimes trial. It's one of the many ways that making power corrupts costs money. We've completely resisted the standard model of podcasting that involves corporate donors or being attached to a media conglomerate. It gives us the flexibility to cover corruption and other sensitive topics unflinchingly, without worrying whether we're about to ruffle some powerful feathers. We're also ad-free this season, because ads are annoying. But to keep going with this audience-friendly, but frankly financially idiotic approach, we need your support. If you want to support our work, consider joining the Power Corrupts community on patreon.com powercorrupts, where you'll get access to bonus content, early episodes, and Zoom meetings with me and George. We're going to keep releasing uncut interviews from this season, as well as some never-before-listened-to uncut interviews from earlier episodes in previous seasons. And there will be entire bonus episodes as well. Or you can also support the show by pre-ordering my new book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, which comes out on November 9th, 2021 in the US and January 6th, 2022 in the UK. Pre-orders are hugely important for a book's success because it signals early interest to reviewers and bookshops, so I hope you'll consider picking up a copy sooner rather than later. You'll hear an exclusive excerpt from the audiobook version read by yours truly for next week's episode. Thanks for listening and for your support. For well over a decade, until his arrest in January of 2015, Dominic Ongwin was one of the most senior commanders in the Lord's Resistance Army, the LRA. The LRA is an armed group. It came into being in northern Uganda in the late 1980s. It aimed to overthrow the government of Yoweri Museveni, then, as now, the president of Uganda. Dominic Ongwen appeared in trial chamber 9 in the International Criminal Court in The Hague, Netherlands. Ongwen was charged with 70 counts of crimes against humanity and war crimes, which include murder, attempted murder, torture, cruel and inhuman treatment, pillaging, persecution, enslavement, destruction of property, rape, sexual slavery, forced pregnancy, recruiting children into rebel ranks and using children to participate. His case is really interesting because it's a victim turned perpetrator. Well, it starts when you're abducted. Some are forced to commit atrocities. The LRA had the tactic of eliminating parents to prevent those who were younger within their forces to return back home, to give them reason to stay within the rebel forces. Dominic is a sacrifice lamb. He has been used as a sacrifice lamb. Dominic Ongwin wasn't a sacrificial lamb. He wasn't a lamb at all. In fact, he was the butcher, not the lamb. On March 10th, 2020, right before the world went into lockdown, I traveled to The Hague in the Netherlands for the closing statements in the International Criminal Court's trial of Dominic Ongwin. The International Criminal Court is the place where people get tried for despicable, depraved acts perpetrated on a large scale, often during violent conflicts or genocides. Dominic Ongwin was kidnapped as a child in northern Uganda by the Lord's Resistance Army a brutal militia that has a long track record of war crimes and other horrific atrocities. You may have heard of the LRA and its notorious leader, Joseph Coyne, sometimes pronounced Coney, and he's still at large. But even though Ongwen entered the organization as a child captive, he left it as a commander, one of the most senior figures in the entire organization. And during the decades that he was an LRA fighter and commander, he committed some unspeakably brutal crimes against many, many vulnerable civilians. episode, we're going to be exploring his case, which is dark, but utterly fascinating. 
And in the process, we're going to begin to understand just how thin the line can be between victim and perpetrator, and why that distinction might not matter as much as you think it does for the criminal justice system. Was Dominic Angwin a defenseless victim? Or was he a monster who created victims? The answer to these questions, as you'll soon hear, is both. The LRA had a long-standing policy of abducting and conscripting children, including children under the age of 15 years, into its ranks. That policy was implemented in all its units and in the Senea Brigade between the 1st of July 2002 and the 31st of December 2005. That, of course, is the charged period on which this trial is focused. That period was no exception. Boys were abducted to become LRA fighters, and girls were abducted to become forced wives and domestic servants or babysitters known as ting-tings. Every unit in the Senea Brigade had children under 15 in its ranks during the charge period, and abductions were a standard part of Senior Brigade's operations. How did Dominic Angwin go from enjoying an innocent childhood to robbing other children of theirs? To help us understand, I spoke with a journalist who covered Angwin's trial from start to finish and who has written extensively about the case. I'm uh, Johannes Böhme. I'm a freelance journalist. Around the time where he's yeah, nine years old, the war actually comes to the north of Uganda, to the village where he is born. And his childhood is actually quite peaceful and pretty normal for the first years. He's described by his relatives as a very gifted child, so as somebody who's very intelligent, very diligent, very disciplined. He gets good grades in school. His relatives told me that he was the best in his school, so the best of more than 100 pupils in school. And he's also described as a child that was very easy to like in a way. The older relatives all loved him. They, Because he was so helpful in their daily tasks, he would often look after the goats or help in the fields. And they describe him as a child that, for instance, would learn riddles and jokes and tell them to his older relatives to entertain them. So he's very much the golden child of the family, somebody that they told me, they, somebody that they expect would later become a leader of the community, somebody that they can rely on and look up to. And when he grew up, as he grew up, his uncle says that he was an obedient boy, someone you would tell, clean the compound, and that's what he used to do. That's Andrew Aranatwe, a Ugandan journalist. And when he visited Angwin's home village, he was struck by how remote it was. There weren't really any roads, just a walking path that had been matted down by footsteps, which they had to use as a makeshift road to reach the village. You can imagine just getting into such an area, which is literally surrounded by bush, thick bush, savanna vegetation. When the LRA entered the region where Dominic Angwin's family lived, his family tried to hide him, to escape from the violent armed group that had already massacred civilians and abducted children. So they start living on these mats in the bush, and they essentially start hiding both from government soldiers and from the rebels that sort of roam the area. But they still send their children to school. So they would walk to school and then come back. But this time, he would never come back home. This is what becomes a problem for Dominic Ongwen because he's actually caught on his way to school by the rebels. During the abduction, Dominic's older brother managed to get away and to alert the family about what had happened. It's only when the elder brother escaped, the one who had been caught with Dominic Ongwen, to tell the parents that Ongwen had been taken away by the LRA. That's when they discovered that now they had to go and hunt down and find out where their son was. For a child abducted by the LRA, this is where the brutality begins. The process is designed to make it clear to the child that there is no longer a home to escape to, and that their new home is with the LRA. One of the first things the rebels did was that they threw away his school books, and they told him that they were no good anymore and that he was now supposed to follow them. But it wasn't just school that was never coming back for Dominic. It was also his family. 
the LRA were to be Ongwen's new family. In Ongwen's case, they also killed his mother, actually, even though he didn't know that at the time. But on the same day, his mother tried to run after the LRA rebels that had abducted her son, and she was killed. Ongwen himself apparently didn't witness that. He didn't know about it. He only found out about it later. But this was also quite standard practice, that they would kill relatives in front of the children to make return seem impossible and to make it clear that there was actually no place to return to. He knew that the compound that he had grown up in was abandoned. There was not really a place to go back to. The rebels smeared shea butter all over the children's bodies, a concoction that they said provided magical protections for the new child conscripts. But lest the newly abducted child soldiers be under the impression that they could come and go as they pleased, the LRA also made clear that escape was not an option. And sometime in the first three days, they witness somebody gets killed who is trying to escape. And they're seeing that, they're being made to witness it, they're being made to watch. And this is obviously part of the indoctrination process. Sometimes they made them actually kill themselves. In other instances, they just made them watch. Dominic Ongwen was just a kid who found himself alongside people who were experienced at making hell on Earth. But he was a resilient kid, and he quickly fit in with his captors. He was well-respected initially because he was so clean, because he was so diligent, because he was so disciplined. All of that, I guess, contributed to the fact that he adapted very well to this really, really harsh environment. He was a child that had an astonishing capacity to adapt to almost any environment. At such an impressionable age, such an innocent part of youth, Angwin was made to be violent. And for many child soldiers, that experience is disorienting and upsetting, but it's also exhilarating. Violence also has something exciting about it. I mean, so many of these former child soldiers I spoke with, for them, it also had something profoundly exciting to it. Suddenly, they were learning how to handle guns. Suddenly, they had power. That's Christoph Titeka, a professor at the University of Antwerp and an expert on the Angwen case. Before, many of them, they were watching American action movies. So they all knew uh, Rambo or Van Damme, and suddenly they had command over weapons themselves. So that's also played a role, not for all of them, but for a significant amount of former LRA I spoke with, it did. Whether out of fear, exhilaration, brainwashing, or a mix of all of the above, for nearly three decades, Angwin grew up in the LRA, then rose through its ranks, and eventually presided over most of the organization as a senior commander. He stayed in the, in the Lord's Resistance Army for nearly 27 years, which is almost unheard of. There's, I've met a lot of former Lord's Resistance Army fighters, but it's very hard to even find somebody who was in the organization for more than 10 years, let alone 20 years. While others defected or escaped, Angwin stayed. But in 2014, he emerged from the bush in the Central African Republic, carrying only a Bible and he turned himself in. He told his newfound captors that a cloud had guided him to them, and that he had survived an attack from a pack of lions. His body was scarred with 11 bullet wounds. Still, nobody recognized him. They had no clue who he was. But when he was turned over to U.S. special forces in the region, they realized that the man that they had in custody was Dominic Angwin, a man who was wanted for crimes against humanity with an arrest warrant issued by the International Criminal Court. Mr. Ongwen, please rise. When Ongwen first spoke at his trial, here's what he said. First of all, I would like to thank God for creating heaven and earth, together with everybody that's on earth. It was, Johannes reported, the first time that Ongwen had worn a suit in his entire life. In court, there were 70 counts, which sounds like a lot, but it really boils down to war crimes, crimes against humanity, and essentially murder, torture, rape, enslavement, the abduction of child soldiers. 
The litany of crimes are some of the most gruesome imaginable. Enlisting child soldiers, commanding babies to be thrown in rubbish bins and left to die, attacking refugee camps and using rape and forced pregnancy as weapons of war. During the trial, there was day after day of heart-wrenching witness testimony. Victims of Angwin spoke, including some who had their identities obscured in the courtroom for their own safety, lest they end up as targets of retribution by the LRA. I won't detail all of the crimes here, but if you can imagine some of the worst things that one human being can do to another, well, Angwin was implicated in countless acts of that variety. There were 130 witnesses in total at the trial, but one of the main pieces of evidence were actually these radio intercepts by the Ugandan army. So what the Ugandan army did, they had several intercepting operations, both by the police and the army, and they would listen in on what the LRA was actually saying on the radio. And these army technicians and people that listened to these radio calls, they would they would write down what was being said, obviously, and after a while they apparently were able to identify who was speaking. And the evidence was pretty overwhelming. To get a sense of how the prosecution approached that evidence, I spoke to Benjamin Gumpert, the lead prosecutor for the Angwin case at the International Criminal Court, a dazzling trial lawyer and orator who captivated the courtroom for hours on end with his sparkling prose. Prose that even occasionally sounded like he was narrating a disturbing thriller, albeit a tragic one that had actually happened with real victims. This was a straightforward case where the evidence was solid, where we could hear Ongwen's own voice applauding the terrible destruction which he had wrought, laughing about it with other senior commanders, where we'd got his former subordinates recounting the way in which the atrocities had been planned, where we had his victims of rape and sexual enslavement giving accounts of the dreadful things which happened to them, former child soldiers talking about their experiences at his hands. The case was, frankly, strong. The question wasn't whether Dominic Angwin had done horrific, horrible things. He had. And the prosecution had a pretty easy time at proving that. The trial hinged instead on whether Angwin was criminally responsible for those acts. There were many legal arguments put forward by the defense team, but two of them were emphasized. The two which were relevant in this case were duress and mental illness. And those were really the focus of this trial. And the judges looked at both of those really carefully. They were essentially saying he had two personalities, one good, one evil, and that every time he went into battle, every time he went into combat or committed massacres, the evil side of his personality had taken over and that essentially he was not truly responsible for these deeds because that was sort of part of his mental illness. Was he responsible for his actions? Did he have moral autonomy? Or was he, by virtue of mental illness, which might have been inherent or might have been caused by what happened to him and the trauma of what happened to him, no longer capable of moral autonomy because his capacity to distinguish between right and wrong had been destroyed. And those two words are key words, capacity and destroyed. So the question was not, did he understand the difference between right and wrong? It's, was he capable of doing so? The problem was that the psychiatric experts had actually not really done their homework, or so it seemed in the trial, because they had actually not really corroborated the accounts that Dominique Ongwen had given them. They had just taken everything he'd said at face value. The first time he actually got up and spoke, he spoke for an hour and three quarters. He had numbered points. He developed an elaborate argument, not to apologize or to seek forgiveness for what he had done, but essentially to justify himself. I don't think any reasonable person listening to that hour and three quarters can seriously entertain the idea that this is a man whose mental capacity has been destroyed. He was articulate and in some respects, persuasive. 
a man plainly, in my opinion, of high mental capacity. Then there was the question of duress. Did Dominic Angwin do the horrible things that he did simply because he was being coerced and threatened by people who would kill him if he didn't comply with their orders? So he's sane, so he understands how the world works. He's able to make the kind of calculations of right and wrong. Is it possible that he was only doing what he was doing because he remained under duress? The defense obviously claimed that he was, in a way, still a victim. That was sort of the whole claim by the defense was that he'd gone from child soldier to essentially heavily traumatized adult that had almost no power over his actions, that was completely under the sway of this despotic leader who controlled every aspect of his actions, and that he just felt he had absolutely no way to turn to, even as an adult, and that that made him do all these horrific things. Even if he felt some pressure, though, was that enough to justify the horrible things that he had done? If I don't lead my troops to attack this camp full of displaced persons, to murder those who try to resist my soldiers when they seize food, when they abduct children, to burn the place to the ground. If I don't do all those things and get my soldiers to do all those things, then I myself or my close relatives or family members will be punished and punished in such a way that a reasonable person would think that committing that crime is a proper way of avoiding myself the punishment that will come to me otherwise. And I think when you put it like that, if you like my unpacking of duress, what threat is there that could possibly, in my opinion at any rate, justify those kind of crimes, repeated, extensive murders, abductions, rape, sexual slavery. It makes sense to some extent that the duress argument would absolve some of the crimes, in theory at least. After all, we all agree that people are less culpable for their actions if they do them while they have a literal gun to their head. And there were blatant threats being made to LRA members who considered leaving. Christoph Titeka again. So another risk was, well, if somebody tried to escape, they would kill the person. If the person was caught, the person would be killed in front of the others to set an example. If you escape successfully, we will come after your family and or your village. And indeed, that has happened in which the LRA retaliated by attacking and killing the um, escapee's family and or village. But as the prosecution methodically demonstrated, there were plenty of points where Angwin claimed that he was under duress, even when he was well outside the watchful eye of any of his murderous superiors in the LRA. Most importantly of all, okay, Angwin wasn't the boss of the whole organization. He was hundreds of miles away from anybody who was his superior. He had absolute authoritative control over the whole of the unit that he commanded. He could, if he wanted, have just marched into the local barracks and said, me and my guys, we're giving up. We're handing our guns over. And thousands of people in the LRA did just that, from child soldiers who found the wit and the courage, and it amazes me how, to walk away from the grown men who were enslaving them and somehow managed to get through the bush and get back home or get to safety, up to commanders even more senior than Dominic Ongwen. So, had enough of this, I'm packing it in, I'm seeking amnesty. And at no stage in his career, he thought about it. There was good evidence that he thought about that. Indeed, he got into trouble with Joseph Coyne at one stage because he was suspected correctly of being in negotiations with the government about surrender. When push came to shove, he never did it. Now, I can't speculate. Well, I could speculate, but um, why? I don't know. I mean, he was a commander. He was the top dog. He had women, servants at his beck and call. He had the best of everything. I dare say it was a tough life, even as a brigadier out in the bush with the Lord's Resistance Army. But 
to a certain extent, he plainly enjoyed it. That's why he carried on with it. And he was very good at what he did. In fact, there was even a moment in which Angwin encountered soldiers from Uganda's military and had the opportunity to defect, to hand himself in, to escape from the duress that he and the defense team claimed Angwin was operating under. We simply pointed to the fact that duress couldn't possibly run as a defense for him because he had clearly defined opportunities to escape from that duress and repeatedly didn't take them. There was quite a large amount of evidence about a particular encounter he had with senior officers of the Ugandan army. They invited him to surrender. This was actually after all of the crimes of which he has now been convicted. So if he had escaped at that point, it would not, on the face of it, have provided him with a defence for what he'd done previously. But we used it as evidence that even then, when he was plainly capable of saying, OK, Colonel so-and-so, here's my assault rifle, me and my boys, we want to hand ourselves in. And that was what they were imploring him to do. And he, he wouldn't do it. And when they asked him, well, OK, what about the child soldiers? He said, they're not children, they're my soldiers. That was the evidence of his reply. That therefore seems to be obvious evidence that Ongwen wasn't in a situation where he felt like a gun was being held to his head. If he was hundreds of miles away from people above him in the pecking order, how could he possibly feel like he had to obey their orders? Indeed, they have completely opposite understandings of power. For the defense team, it's about power is being held outside of Ongwen. It's a tool used by Kony to control him. He was powerless and he remained powerless throughout his stay in the LRA. Whereas the prosecutor says, no, well, he was, you know, he had all power to leave whenever he wanted. And this is where this case takes yet another twist. Remember that shea butter that Dominic Ongwen was lathered with when he first joined the LRA as a child? That was part of a series of rituals all of which created the distinct impression that Joseph Coyne, the leader of the LRA, possessed magical powers that could be used to strike down those who crossed him. He believed so intensely, for instance, in Joseph Coney's spiritual powers and the powers to control the spiritual world that he would immediately detect if he were defecting and that he would be punished and possibly killed. So they argued that was one of the main reasons why he never escaped and why he didn't just disobey the orders that he was given. Initially, they might not believe too much, and they might think ah, it's exaggerated, but almost all of them say after a while, they start seeing these miracles. They start seeing the power of Joseph Kony. So in that way, it also becomes more difficult for them to escape because they're more and more convinced of Joseph Kony's power. This creates an interesting legal puzzle that revolves around spiritual belief and criminal culpability. If you believe that someone has godlike powers and could strike you dead with a bolt of magical lightning from hundreds of miles away, is that legally akin to having a gun held to your head? That's what Angwin's defense was effectively arguing. But Benjamin Gumpert, the lead prosecutor, argues quite convincingly, I may add, that as a practical matter, setting that precedent would be disastrous for our society. You couldn't prescribe in advance what the position would be for a religious fanatic. I would not like to think that a terrorist committing their terrorist activities because of a strong and genuine faith could go to the Old Bailey and say, I had to do it, otherwise my God would have punished me. So you can't find me guilty. I think that if we came to a position where that was a defense likely to succeed in our courts, then we'd be in trouble. I think this is a fair point. Once we start allowing the internal monologues of perpetrators or their spiritual and religious beliefs to act as criminal defenses, there's quite a long slippery slope. And it's not one that would serve society particularly well in the criminal justice system. However, some advocates for Angwin do argue that this is a Western-centric view that misunderstands the power of these kinds of spiritual beliefs in other non-Western societies. Other advocates for Angwin argue that he's a victim, not a perpetrator, and that the ICC is barking up the wrong tree. 
In the opening, you heard a snippet from Jacqueline Atingo, a Ugandan human rights expert that I spoke to who has written extensively about the Angwin case, in which she calls him a sacrificial lamb, someone strung up despite the fact that there were others higher in the LRA hierarchy who are still at large. The audio quality on our call cut out a bit during our conversation, unfortunately, so I haven't included it here, but she told me that some people told her that Angwin should have been let off lightly given his past as an abducted child soldier, a victim first and foremost. So I put this to Benjamin Gumpert. Is it the case that from a legal perspective, it doesn't matter what happened to him previously? It does matter. It's not right to say that it doesn't matter. But as I said in my closing speech, the fact that dreadful things have been done to you, that you were and that you remain, frankly, a victim of the crimes of others, cannot possibly, no sensible person thinks, okay, that means that that victim has got a free pass. Whatever they do from now on, they won't be investigated, they won't be prosecuted, they won't be sentenced for their crime. No, nobody thinks that's a sensible approach. Otherwise, you've created a class of perpetrators who, by virtue of their victim status, cannot be prevented, cannot be brought to book, cannot be punished. Nobody believes that that's a sensible way of going about things. At least, I really hope they don't. Of course, any person who thinks about his circumstances is likely to feel a degree of sympathy for the fact that he was abducted and that probably the crimes he subsequently committed are crimes he would not have committed but for that piece of evil fortune. Uh, but he's not a sacrificial lamb. And this is where the critique of the ICC, the caricature that it's somehow out to get people from non-Western countries, or that it's unable to see the complexity of these cases. In my view, this is where that argument falls apart. Because when I spoke to Benjamin Gumpert, I asked him whether he saw Angwin as a victim or a perpetrator. And I was struck by how nuanced his remarks were when he spoke about the man that he prosecuted. Of course, crime begets crime. And it's a sad, sad story, which results from what has happened to them. But there's nothing, regrettably, nothing new about that. The ICC isn't going to stop that happening. And it was happening long before the ICC began. And if and when the ICC falls into abeyance, it'll still be happening. This comes back to your question about victim and perpetrator. You use the word dichotomy. It's not the right word, I think. There isn't a dichotomy, meaning what, split or, or fissure, but there isn't. He was both a, I'm struggling to use a word which you're going to be able to broadcast, um, a monster. He wasn't a monster. He was a man who could behave very badly in a hugely violent and exploitative way. But he was also plainly Many of the same witnesses who described him doing the most atrocious things, sometimes to them, would say in almost next breath how kind he could be, how attentive. It's plain that he was a hugely inspirational commander. His troops admired him. He was prepared himself to put himself in the front line, to take risks. He was innovative. He thought of ways in which he could minimize casualties. He made good plans. He talked about them. He was prepared to change his plans if somebody else came up with a better one. He liked to play football with the kids in the camp. He was a fully rounded human being with dreadful flaws, but obviously massive plus points. Probably a really interesting, inspirational person to have a conversation with, to do a podcast with. It would be fascinating. But yet none of that means that he gets off the hook. For better or worse, I'm afraid, for hundreds of people who were murdered and thousands of victims in other ways, for much worse, he did these things. He gave those orders. These plus points, as Gumpert puts them, cut both ways. Sure, they could show Angwin in a more sympathetic light, but they also showed that his moral core seemed to be reasonably intact, even as he was committing atrocities. And with that moral core comes culpability. There's sort of a core of moral responsibility that I think remains. And there's a sort of cruel 
catch-22 in this trial that every time he showed himself to be kind or independently minded from his leader, for instance, every time he refused an order because he thought, for instance, it was too cruel, he was showing that he had all these moral capacities. And these moral capacities obviously also make him responsible in a certain way. So the fact that he still retains that kind of this human complexity throughout also made it clear that there was also something to be held accountable. And I guess that's the really cruel catch-22 of all of this, is that every aspect of goodness that we saw during the trial and that some of the people that I talked to, for instance, also testified to, also made it clear that he can and should be held accountable, that there's sort of, in a sense, still something that even the harshest violence couldn't touch within him, some sort of sense of right and wrong. Gumpert, for his part, was able to separate out the deeds from the man. To understand that Dominic Angwin may not have committed crimes had he avoided being kidnapped by the LRA in the first place. But he was kidnapped, and he did commit those crimes. And you can't issue get-out-of-jail cards to unlucky people. But that doesn't mean that the prosecution viewed him as an irredeemably depraved, one-dimensional human being, even though he committed utterly depraved acts. The number of people I have prosecuted or defended where I have thought to myself, whoa, this chap is wicked. I'm in the presence of serious evil here. Fingers of two hands at best over 30 years. The vast majority of people who end up on the wrong side of the criminal law are victims. They're people who've had a poor deal in life, a rotten deal in life. This conversation was a rare insight into how the International Criminal Court functions and how the prosecutors there see their job. What's it like to be putting away the worst of the worst, to try people who orchestrated atrocities on an unfathomable scale? So I asked Benjamin Gumpert whether he was able to keep a healthy psychological distance from his thoughts about Angwin the man while he set to work putting him behind bars. A lawyer, an advocate, is like a plumber. I don't judge the morality of the person whose leak I come to fix. I just mop the water up, replace the pipe, and present my bill. That sounds mercenary, and perhaps it is in a way, and and perhaps it's good. I don't think it's right that people are defended by people who passionately believe in their cause. You don't want a plumber who thinks you're a good person. You want a plumber who doesn't care a fig about whether you're a good person, but who's good at fixing leaks. Likewise, I don't think that crusading prosecutors who say, oh, I could never defend those people, or one-eyed defenders who who say, I could never prosecute, in my view, that's completely missing the point. The job of the advocate is to be a cog in the justice machine. And society turns the handle and all the cogs mesh together, and you hope that out of the other end plops a little sausage, which is called justice. You're part of the machine, and it is your job, whichever way the machine is being turned, for the prosecution or the defence, to do your part, to do your part as well as you can, with as much engagement and persuasive power and reference to the relevant law as you can muster. And if both sides have got lawyers who are doing that to the best of their ability, and decent judges, and in the US and UK, a fair jury, you will get a fair hearing. That will be the result. But the idea that the lawyer in some sort of Perry Mason or Columbo style sort of finds the truth because they believe in their client or they know that the prosecution is well-founded, that's unhelpful in my view. It may make good cinema, doesn't make good law. When the verdict was reached, the crank had been turned and the sausage plopped out. The chamber has therefore convicted Dominic Ongman of a total of 61 crimes, compromising both crimes against humanity and war crimes. To try to sum up in a few words the lengthy and technical verdict rendered by the chamber, Dominic Ongman has been found guilty beyond reasonable doubt of a number of crimes committed in the context of the four specified attacks on the IDP camps of Pajule, 
Odek, Lukodi and Abok. Attacks against the civilian population, murder, attempted murder, torture, enslavement, outrages upon personal dignity, pillaging, destruction of property and persecution. Secondly, Dominic Angwin was sentenced to 25 years imprisonment for his crimes. But like all ICC proceedings, the trial lasted for a decent chunk of that time, nearly six years from when he was charged to when he was convicted. And that leads us to another key point. The ICC may get the job done, but it does it in a way that is in serious need of reform. I think that there is a real risk that the proceedings at the ICC are simply so long and so convoluted and conducted at such an abstract level when it comes to the conception of the crimes which are alleged that ordinary people don't understand. They tune in or they come to The Hague and they sit in the public gallery. And I've had this disturbing experience. I go out for a cigarette at lunchtime and some people come out who I've seen in the public gallery and there's a moment of recognition. I've been down there in the fish tank. They've been up in, in the observation gallery and they wander across and say, oh, you were the lawyer, weren't you? And I said, yeah, that's right. And they say, well, we were there all morning. Can you just tell it what was happening? But, you know, this is after two hours. And I think to myself, yep, absolutely. I wouldn't understand it either. Gumpert also points to the abstract nature of the charges against Angwin, a concept that rests on something called indirect co-perpetration. So you've got perpetration, then you've got co-perpetration, and then you've got indirect co-perpetration. I once asked the bloke who was writing the entry for the international explainer book to explain it to me. And he couldn't really. He knew what to say, but when I asked him some questions about how do you reconcile this with that or the other, yeah, he couldn't really do it. Because they have no juries, they have the luxury of inventing these absolutely crazily complex things. What really disturbs me is if you're a defence counsel at the ICC, even if you've got somebody pretty sharp, pretty intelligent like Dominic Ongwen, in my view, possibly the most intelligent man in the room, Okay, no formal training, but there are no flies on that guy. Explaining to your client how it is the prosecution say you're guilty, absolute nightmare. And yet that's meant to be the essence of defense lawyering, that you explain to your client what the case against him is. Beyond that, Gumpert also says that the ICC needs to make its proceedings less complex, less drawn out, less needlessly messy and indecipherable so that the people who are being served by the court can actually understand what it's up to. The complexity and the extraordinary length of proceedings at the ICC mean that that is really difficult. And I find that, I think I can use the word dangerous, because I think that a justice system which isn't invested in by the people it purports to be doing justice on behalf of where those people are positively repulsed by the workings of that system, where the judgments are so long and so complex that no ordinary person would ever read it. I'm going to tell you something terrible. I haven't read the whole Longman judgment. It's over a thousand pages. I was the chief prosecution lawyer. I've read the parts which I thought were important and interesting. I haven't read the whole thing. I doubt I've read half of it. And I bet you nobody else apart from real obsessives has. I've interviewed a lot of powerful people who have worked at the top echelons of these kinds of organizations. And I have to tell you what a breath of fresh air it is for someone to just speak so plainly and directly about the failings of institutions that can and should do better. Bravo to Benjamin Gumpert for saying something that I think needs to be said, needs to be shouted from the rooftops for anyone who cares about international justice systems. But even though his critiques are warranted, he still rightly points out that the ICC serves a crucial purpose. I think it is a deterrent. The existence of the ICC alone is a deterrent, even to people who don't understand how it works. 
as you know, part of the evidence against Dominic Ongwin was the interception of LRA radio communications. In the course of those later communications by 2004-2005, from time to time, LRA leaders communicating on the radio would talk about the ICC, would talk about it saying, oh, you're going to end up in The Hague. And I think that actually that's a phrase which has begun to slip into ordinary speech. Newspaper writers, columnists, whatever, say casually, he'll end up in The Hague. People know what that means, being arrested and tried for war crimes. Inasmuch as the purpose of the setting up of the court was to deter future criminality by making people in countries where the criminal justice system doesn't work properly think, okay, I might be able to wriggle out of anything I like here, but there's something else, there's something international. The fact that I can square things at home doesn't necessarily get me off the hook. I think that's terrific. I think that's almost worth the money it costs to keep the court running in itself, even if it had no other function. In that way, the ICC is the last line of defense. If you commit horrible atrocities in a country with flimsy or non-existent rule of law and then grease the wheels of justice, you might just get away with it. Heck, Pablo Escobar murdered thousands of people and then convinced the government in Colombia to let him build himself his own luxury jail, complete with every creature comfort imaginable. The ICC is the ultimate backstop in cases like those with war criminals, because it is set up to be impossible to bribe, impossible to bend to the will of the perpetrator. And that does change the calculations of would-be war criminals, who know that there's always this specter of getting shipped off to The Hague to face the relentless rhetorical lashings of people like Benjamin Gumpert. Dominic Ongwin's trial is fascinating precisely because it puts so many philosophical issues into sharp focus. For prosecutors and defense attorneys alike, it's obvious that people who are perpetrators are often also victims. But Ongwin's life story is such a jarring contrast between both of those sides that it makes the rest of us ponder much more deeply how situations and circumstance drive human behavior and what that means for our views on culpability and punishment. Today, Dominic Ongwin has been convicted of horrible atrocities. But what could he have been if things had turned out just a little bit different? There's sort of a counterfactual here, a different life that this man could have led if he'd just taken a different turn on the morning to school and or possibly even only been 10 minutes late or something like that. And if he had not been abducted, he might have led a completely different and possibly very productive life that doesn't resemble this sort of violent rebel leader at all could have possibly become a lawyer himself or a doctor or something like that or in some other ways transcended the confines of life in that village and possibly led a very different kind of existence and that's obviously that was sort of always and I think on everyone's mind actually not only on my mind but also on the mind of some of the lawyers in the courtroom they in a way some of the lawyers I think self-identified with the accused to a degree, because they saw that this was somebody who, under different circumstances, could have been on the other side of the bench, who could have been a, a very talented lawyer, for instance, or who definitely could have led a very different existence to the one that he eventually led. Life is unfair. We're born into different situations, and a little boy today is struck by lightning on a football field. I played football in a thunderstorm when I was a kid. Didn't happen to me, but could have done. I'm not sure that it's very profitable to spend too much time on that. It's undoubtedly true, I think, that with different life circumstances, Dominic Ongwen could have been a very good advocate, could have been doing what I'm doing. And who knows, if I'd been abducted when I was sometime between 9 and 14 by the LRA, maybe I would have ended up doing what he did. I really hope not. But can I put my hand on my heart and say definitely no? Don't think I can. It's not helpful to say that. I mean, unless you are saying, well, because life is such a hazardous, chancy thing, whereby there's no telling what's going to come out, we're never going to make any judgment about anything. 
you could say, you know, life is so complex, so multifarious, so richly stranded that I cannot trust myself ever to pass judgment on anything which anybody else does. Well, we could have an anarchic society like that, but most people in organized countries with good governance agree that actually, while that might be a morally purer way of living our lives, it's not practical. We need some kind of institution, the courts, which will bring people to account for what they have done and will try them and sentence them if they're found guilty. That's simply the way in which our society organizes itself to best effect. Dominic Ongwin is and remains a victim, a victim of atrocious crime. The prosecution never suggested that was not the case. The judges have never suggested that's not the case. The case has to proceed from that starting point. Yes, here is a person who is a victim of terrible things. And for that, we, as best we can, because it's impossible to imagine, must sympathize with him. We must cut him a lot of slack. We must recognize that he is likely to behave in eccentric and different ways because of that victimhood. Given all of that, now let's look at what he's actually done. What the evidence proves 100% that he's actually done. What are we going to do about that? Are we just going to say, oh, well, poor lad, he didn't know any better? Or are we going to set the wheels of justice in motion? And if we do, as we do so, how are we going to deal with concepts like mental illness and duress? That's what's happened here. It's been, I think, I suppose I would, I was the prosecutor, a careful, well-regulated process, which has been done in a humane and just fashion from A to Z, and which resulted in a very long sentence. People are complicated. Even people who do the worst things imaginable are complicated. So, was Dominic Ongwen a victim or a perpetrator? The answer, quite clearly, is both. Thank you for listening. And a special thanks to Jacqueline Atingo, who spoke to me at length for this episode, but who I didn't include here because of audio issues. Sorry about that. If you found this episode thought-provoking, please rate and review Power Corrupts wherever you listen to podcasts, or post about us on social media. It really helps others find out about the show. And please consider supporting our work, either by joining a community of Power Corrupts listeners at patreon.com slash powercorrupts, or by pre-ordering my forthcoming book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, which you can order wherever you buy books. This episode was written and narrated by me, Brian Kloss. The executive producer was George McDonough, who also did the sound editing. The Power Corrupts theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. And a special thanks to Natalie Calderon, one of my excellent students at University College London, who helped me research this episode. Next week, you'll hear much of the first chapter of the audiobook for Corruptible. I hope you enjoy it. Goodbye for now.